All right, Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 19. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies to Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a, of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from, where they come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, what you did at Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death, our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on your head if a hand is laid on them, on our head, if a hand is laid on them. This is the word of the Lord. Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, before we... Um, Dive into this passage and ask uh, the Lord to uh, show us himself in it. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, uh, we've been called into worship this morning by you, um, and now we're all here, whether we're aware of it or not, because you've, you've called us here uh, for this moment and uh, for this time. And you are big enough and kind enough and extravagant enough to have something for each one of us this morning. You love meeting with your children and you love drawing people to yourself. And so I pray this morning you do that through your word. We've sang about your birth. We've sang about this season. And now, Father, we're coming 
to study the, the coming of our Messiah, and many of us can be numb to it, myself included. Many of us, this season can get lost, and, and the invitation not only of this season, but of this day each week is that you would slow our hearts down long enough to stop talking that we might listen. And so still us now as you speak to us. Use your word to guide us. Send your Holy Spirit to this place to cast a spotlight on Jesus that we might leave here having seen him and beheld him and stand in awe of him, we pray. We pray now for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning that you forgive him his sins for they are many. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So welcome. Uh, This is Advent season. If you weren't sure, the Christmas tree is behind me. Declare that to you. Uh, This season historically, Advent season historically, is a season where the church pauses, the church slows its own calendar down, and it turns itself back in history to remember the coming of Jesus into the world, to remember the story of Christmas. And that practice is not just for sentimental reasons. Advent is a a word that literally means the arrival. It's the arrival, notably, of someone who is important or who is noteworthy, the arrival. So emperors in the ancient world would have advents into towns and villages in their empire. And when the emperor arrived, it's the advent of someone very important and someone meaningful. And so advent, notably or understandably, has become a, a synonym for Christmas because it is the great arrival. It is the great appearing of a very important person but coming with that season, coming with that um, practice, the, 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 the Advent itself also assumes, it also understands that the season before an Advent, if an Advent is truly of someone important arriving, the season before that arrival is a season for those people of longing and waiting and expectation and hopes and saying, I don't know when this Advent's going to happen, but I sure do hope it does. And so this practice of remembering Advent is not only looking back and looking at the story of Jesus' coming, it's looking back at what was it like when all of those people for thousands of years in the Old Testament were waiting and waiting and hoping and hoping and expecting and expecting and longing and longing for their Messiah to come. And we do that, we look back at that, not only, again, for sentimental reasons, we do that because now as the people of God, now as the church, now as followers of Jesus, we ourselves are also waiting on an advent. We ourselves are also waiting on an arrival of Jesus. The church has been called for many centuries a people between the advents. And so we, we study this first advent and we look back at it, but we're not only looking backwards, we're studying this coming of Jesus so that we would look ahead. It's almost as if to nourish us, it's almost as if to, to refill us and refuel us to say, our Jesus advented once, surely he will do it again. And when we doubt it and when we long for it and, and our hopes feel dashed and when it's, it's hard and it's excruciating to keep hoping for this promised arrival that's coming when all things will be made well, we remember that he came once when he promised he would. And so in this season of Advent, it's meant to slow us down. Yes, it's meant to draw in us the awe of Christmas and the wonder of, uh, wonder of wonders that God is a child, but it's also meant to fuel us as we turn and we look ahead to our Advent that's coming And so in our Advent season this year, we are studying the Christmas story. Didn't sound like it based on what Andrew just read for us. But if you turn to the first page of the New Testament, the first lines of the Christmas story, 
The Christmas story in Matthew chapter one doesn't begin with a baby in a manger. The Christmas story begins in Matthew chapter one with what is known as Jesus's genealogy. This is Jesus's family tree. This is Jesus's lineage. This is his 23 and me. This is him this is him declaring to the reader where he came from and who his ancestors are. And many modern readers glaze over it. It's just a bunch of names that I can't pronounce. I don't really understand. But for the ancient reader, the original reader, they would not have skipped over it. They would have seen it almost as a resume. They would have seen it as something to pay attention to. They would have known that buried in this genealogy is a story. This is the story about the one whom it's telling us about. And there are stories buried within almost every line of the genealogy. But for our Advent season, we are looking at something in particular about his genealogy. Matthew is telling us something. And in particular, he tells us the names in his genealogy. We didn't read uh, the genealogy of Jesus, but just trust me, I'm not making this up. That in the genealogy, there is the names of five women. And that not only would have been unique in, a, in an ancient patriarchal culture to have women inserted in the genealogy of someone important. Why would you do that? Women were, were, were second class. Women were, were shunned. And so to include women, that doesn't make the resume of Jesus sound great. But it's not only that women are in the genealogy of Jesus. It's also which women from Jesus' genealogy. Because he could have listed any of the mothers, any of the wives of the men but he picked five in particular to look at that all tell us a story. We're only studying four of them this, this season of Advent. Last week we looked at Tamar. This week we're looking at Rahab. Next week we'll look at Ruth. And then finally we'll look at Mary, the mother of Jesus. But these five women, all of them tell us a story. All of these women were outsiders. All of these women had shattered stories. All of them experienced stories of hopelessness. All of them would have been people who didn't fit in. And so why in the world would Jesus write these women into his story? He, write, he is writing the story of history. He could have had any women in his genealogy. And he decided to have these five women be the ones that are named. There's incest, there's prostitution, there's pagans, there's, there's idol worshipers, there's sexual abuse victims. All these women, by their stories alone, would have been excluded from their society at the time of their story. But now with the coming of Jesus, he's saying, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not preaching, I'm not bringing a kingdom of exclusion. I'm here to tell you that I'm here to let outsiders belong in. I'm here, part of my story, part of my genealogy is telling you the story that no matter what your story is, no matter what your family history or family system is, no matter what you've done or believed, none of that can ever be used for you as proof that Jesus wouldn't welcome you in. Because these women shatter that idea for us. That grace is breaking into the cosmos and his own family tree, the Messiah's own family tree, tells us the story of grace. So we're looking back at these women, studying their stories to see the redemption, the grace that is in these stories, but we're also looking at them on how are they foreshadowing, how are they getting us to the coming of Jesus? How are they getting us to the first advent? So there's a lot to cover this morning. And normally you can know when I feel like I have a lot to cover, I give an outline. <laughs> uh, so there's an outline this morning, three points that's meant to keep me on the rails, not you. So three things this morning we're gonna look at. Rahab's faith, Rahab's rescue and Rahab's future. Rahab's faith, Rahab's rescue, Rahab's future. Before we look at those three, let me give you a little bit of context. 
what, what uh, Andrew just read for us. Let me just tell you a little bit of the backstory so we can know what the heck's going on before we study it. So Joshua is the fifth book of the Bible, sixth book of the Bible in the Old Testament. And before this, in the season before this for God's people, they have been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. The exodus has happened. He's destroyed Egypt and Pharaoh and the army of, of Pharaoh. And he's led his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, on a journey to the promised land the land that was promised to the forefathers hundreds of years before that said, one day I'm gonna give this land to you and your descendants. Now these are the descendants. The Israelites that leave slavery, they go to Mount Sinai and they get the Ten Commandments and they worship golden calves and then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years and a generation dies off. This next generation, the second generation after slavery in Egypt is now knocking on the door of the promised land, awaiting to go in, to step into the promise that God has made. And Joshua is the leader of this next generation that is about to step into the promised land. There's just one problem with the people of God taking the promised land for themselves that God has promised to them. There are inhabitants in the land, very evil, very skilled, very scary people. And so this is the first battle of God's people stepping into the land that has been promised to them. This is the first city that they must take, Jericho. And so Joshua, the, the leader that he is, sends spies into the land. And we're told in the very next verse, the spies end up at Rahab's house, and Rahab is a prostitute. And most everybody who's reading that goes, well, I wonder why the spies went there. But here's, here's what we need to understand a little bit uh, historically is this was not necessarily that they were going there to become customers. Her house would have been more like, like an Old West saloon. <laughs> Like it would have been a place where, where passerbys and travelers through the city would have come to hang out. And so it's a great place for a foreigner to go and not necessarily be noticed. But somehow they get caught. Somehow they are noticed. Somehow they were seen. Someone at the tavern, someone at the saloon saw them. Someone tells the king of Jericho that there are spies in the land. And the king then sends, man, sends men to Rahab's house to inquire, where are these spies? We need to kill them. And so Rahab lies to these men who have come from the king's house and says, oh, they ran off. I don't even know where they were from, really. They had mustaches on. I couldn't really tell. And so she's saying, they ran for the hills. And the men, the king's men chased them into the hills. All the while, she has hidden the spies on her roof. She goes up to the spies and she begins to have a conversation with them. She says, I've heard about who your God is. I've heard what he's done. And I know what he's about to do to this town and to this city, Jericho. When your God takes this city, please spare us. They assure her that they will, but she wants some proof. And so they vow to her with, with their own lives. The spies do. Our lives are proof that we will spare you. But just to make it sure, hang this scarlet rope that we're about to climb out of to get out of your house. Leave that scarlet rope hanging out of your window. And when we come back into the city, we'll know to spare that part of the city and you and your family will be saved from the coming destruction. So that's what's just happened. That's what Andrew just read for us. That's the context. And in a couple chapters in Joshua, you've probably heard the story or the VBS jingle that the walls came tumbling down. The Israelites will walk around the city of Jericho seven times. And, and so in, in about a week and a half, it's gonna happen. Jericho's gonna, gonna come tumbling down and Rahab and her family, all of them are spared. Joshua chapter six tells us. So that's the story. And the first thing we're going to look at in the story is the faith of Rahab. And generally, all scholars agree 
that the narrative, the, 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 the narrative part, the action part of the story that we just read is, it moves along very quickly and is written in a rather choppy Hebrew grammar. It's almost like the, the narrator, the writer of Joshua in the first six or seven verses of the Rahab story is just saying, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and he's just telling us a bunch of things that happened. Spies went in, they got caught, king sent men, she lied. They, and so it's very quickly moving, and that, there's a point to that. It's because the narrator is trying to get us to the conversation that Rahab has with the spies. She has about 10 verses of conversation with the spies. There's only about six verses of action, which is the narrator's way of telling us, yeah, a lot of stuff is happening. Spies are coming in and getting caught. And, but then I need to tell you what Rahab says to them. Look back with me at verse 9. Allie, can you throw, I don't know what slide verse 9 starts on. Rahab said to them, is that up there? So you can follow along and know that I'm not making this up. Rahab said to them, a couple verses, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, that's the Exodus story, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, those were other battles in the wilderness, and the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, when you completely, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, that's Jericho, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So Rahab, a Canaanite pagan prostitute, just made a confession of faith in Yahweh. She said she's heard what Yahweh has done and that she knows he is the true God of heaven and earth. She's heard the story of all the enemies he's destroyed on the way to Canaan and that she believes him to be the true God of heaven and the true God of earth. All she knew about God was that he was powerful. All she knew about God was that he could destroy people if he wanted to. She only knew a couple of facts about Yahweh, and yet she knows he is the God of heaven and earth. She places faith in Yahweh, get this, with minimal knowledge of him. She places faith in Yahweh with minimal understanding about him. And yet, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, has a famous chapter called the Hall of Faith. Hebrews chapter 11 lists a bunch of Old Testament people that are trophies of faith, and, and Rahab is one of the women, one of the people listed in Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. Her faith is champion. Her faith is a trophy, according to the Bible. But think about this now, because here's what's amazing. She doesn't really have a whole lot to go on. She knows a little bit about God. She knows a little bit about what he's done, and yet she's confessing that I want to believe in him, and I believe he is the true God but think about how this would play out. Think about, let's get into the story a little bit. We're gonna do this a lot this morning. Rahab declares that she knows the impending doom is coming. We know you guys are about to destroy us, she said, and she's pleading to be spared. But then the spies leave. How do you think her psyche is doing between the time when the spies leave and there's this scarlet rope hanging out and I know that these people are circling the, the, the Jericho fortress now and I'm, I'm banking all of my hopes, I'm banking all of my security on the fact that there's this random purple rope hanging out my window and these spies who are meant to deceive people, these spies told me that I could trust their word on it. Her dance of waiting and hoping and believing and doubting, waiting and hoping and believing and doubting, 
comes to us in the passage. The passage actually tells us that she is doing this dance of faith and doubt. Because in verses 9 through 11, she says, I know it. I know your God's the dude. I know he's the one. I know he can destroy anybody. I know that he could destroy us. But please, please, please give me a guarantee. Please, 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 please make sure that he's, he's, he's not going to kill me too. And so she has this experience of certainty and then not so sure. I know he's the God. Not sure I can really trust all the things. This dance of faith that Rahab shows us. Remember, Rahab later on in scripture will be praised for her faith in Hebrews chapter 11. She's a champion of faith. And yet the story tells us she's full of faith and doubt. So doesn't it seem a little odd to you that a prostitute pagan from Jericho who had shaky faith at best based on minimal knowledge of the Almighty is not only in the hall of faith, but she's a grandmother of Jesus? Here's what makes Rahab's faith so great. Rahab's faith says to us this morning that the amount of your faith doesn't make it great. The object of it does. That in the feeble, fickle, terrifying road of having to place one's faith in something which is all of us, isn't it a great comfort that the king of all the earth says that he's not measuring amounts like a competition or an achievement, but he's celebrating weary sinners' weak faith? That's what Rahab says to us. She's not really sure all that much. And yet Hebrew says, emulate her faith. You don't have to understand everything about God. Rahab barely knows anything about him. She gives two lines of his track record of the last 40 years. She doesn't really know. She knows three things he's done. And then she says, but I want to believe in him. Her theology is far from perfect, and her track record is worse than her theology. But here she is before you, a hero of the faith. The New Testament would say, believe like she did. So it should be a great comfort to us that one of the champions of faith is someone who is as weak and as messed up as this prostitute. And if that weren't enough, not only is her faith a deep encouragement to us, but the story of her rescue should astound us too. This is where getting into a biblical narrative is so fun. Old Testament narrative is so fun. You can read it and reread it and continue to kind of rotate the diamond around and see different things that are going on. Old Testament writers are master storytellers. I want to show you this map. Throw this map up for me, Allie. This is a map of, of uh, the promised land before they've uh, taken it over. And the Israelites, we're told, are um, camped out at Abel Shatim, which is kind of right there, centered down a little bit, Abel Shatim, just to the right of the Dead Sea. And they're camped east of the Jordan River that is going you know, up and down right there in the middle, right across from Jericho. Everybody seeing what we're talking about? And so this is where the Israelites are camped. Joshua sends the spies across the river into Jericho while they're camped out, Abel Shatim, on the other side of the river. But please note something. If you know the story up until this point, you know that after the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, they ended their wandering in the wilderness down there at Edom that area, like all the way south. And yet they're on the border. They're knocking at the door of the promised land. And yet they choose, by God's leading, they choose to go up to the north and on the east side of the Jordan River and camp out at Abel Shatim. Now they have a river to cross and a fortress to defeat as their first battle. It would have made a lot more sense, geographically speaking, if they had just entered the promised land right there at Edom and just made their way up. 
But for some reason, the Lord has them going up to the side. Now they've got to cross this river. And there's this huge fortress, most likely the most notorious fortress in all the land. Like, why are they beginning their conquest of the promised land this way? And if the map's not enough, if the geography's not enough, how about this? Remember how our story starts? Joshua in verse one sends spies into the land. And in verse two, the spies are caught and noticed. In other words, they're really bad spies. (laughs) One scholar said, and I love when scholars speak very academically, but he's saying the same thing. As agents of stealth, they were singularly ineffectual. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Means they sucked at what they did. (laughs) They get no intel. They get no helpful information. They don't come back to Joshua and like, man, we've got it, Josh. Now we know exactly how we're gonna take this place. We know exactly what the plan's gonna be. We know exactly what the battle uh, attack should be. None of that. They're really bad spies. And then, if you read the story of, of, of Joshua, Joshua chapter one, they're, they're coming up on the border of the promised land. And then Joshua chapter two, he sends the spies in and they come back. Joshua chapter three, Joshua wakes up and begins praying about how do you want us to take this land, Lord? And you could almost, literally, if you, if you did this, you could pull out chapter two, the story of Rahab, and chapter one and into chapter three would flow perfectly. Like nothing of importance happens in chapter two based on the mega thing that's going on, which is the taking of the promised land. Chapter two is essentially not necessary for the story of Israel's entrance into the promised land. But the fact that the writer of Joshua deliberately pauses for an entire chapter to tell us this non-eventful story should be jumping off the page at the reader. Why in the world are we being told all this? So we've got a geography that doesn't make any sense. We've got spies that aren't good at their job who do no good for the military attack. And then we've got a, a, a story that really could be taken out and the story would be the same. Why in the world did God do this? Why didn't God just send the Israelites over, march around the city and do what he was gonna do anyway? Why didn't God um, just do the marching around the city and destroy the promised land? Why is he going out of his way geographically? Why is he sending bad spies to do a job? Why is, why is this even in scripture? Is it possible that God had a daughter named Rahab that he had to go rescue? Is it possible that God had a mighty plan for his people to take over the promised land? Yes, but he knew he couldn't do that. He couldn't wipe out the city of Jericho before he went and found the one that he had set his affection on. Is God literally that extravagant that he would rewrite history, like make no sense on a geography or a military attack and send bad people to do a bad job into a city? Why is he doing all of this? Is it possible that God loves to leverage all of his resources and turn the kingdom over to get one person? Nothing else about this chapter makes any sense unless God is secretly, silently, and privately going on a rescue mission for his little girl, Rahab. Randy Drawn, who's our senior pastor, founding pastor of all of our Midtown, he's the lead pastor of our Granny White congregation just down the street, He told this story years ago, and I had a similar experience of the same kind. But I was out of town with some friends a few weeks ago, and I went to this shop, and um, I was checking out the shop and um, didn't think anything of it until this past week I got an email, and I got an email that said, hey, were you at such and such shop in such and such town um, a couple weeks ago? And it was kind of like, weirdo. Uh, Yes, I was. And she said, "I, I thought it was you because I thought I recognized your voice. 
because I've been listening to your podcast for three years, but I had no idea what you looked like, and you've got a great face for podcast. No, she didn't say that. But she said, she said, she said, she said, I've been listening to your podcast for years. Someone random, 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 friend of a friend of a friend sent me one, and I need you to know that over the last three years, I've fallen in love with Jesus. And as sweet as that was, here's, here's the moment that I had that Randy tells stories about too. I had this moment where, where the Lord just kind of came and whispered and he said, would you be okay if everything that's going on at 12 South, all of it was for her? Like all the labor, all the sadness, all the loss, all the joy, all the celebration, all the people, all the stories. What if all that was well and fine, but really I was doing it because I had a daughter in a random town in a random shop that needed to hear you. And I was leveraging all of that to come and get her. Would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with a God that leaves 99 to go get one? Does God do that kind of stuff? Does God really leverage all of his kingdom resources to go and get one? Let me ask you that question a different way. Did God do that for you? Did he actually leave 99 to come and get you? Does he actually not have a dollar or a price tag on it that he will expend? He will sp- Look at the resources he's spending for Israel to just go and get one. Like, does God do that? And here's what's amazing about this rescue of Rahab. Rahab's famous now. Rahab's in the hall of faith. She's a grandmother of Jesus. All because God decided to leverage all the resources of his kingdom to come and get her. Like that's how God's glory works. Him getting glory is displayed when he spends all of himself to rescue those whom he loves. That's the kind of God that's on display here. God gets all the glory for this, but look at how good it is for Rahab. Like that's your story too if you belong to Jesus. God spent all of his, do- all of his dollars on you. And he said, and this is what my glory is about. My glory is always about your good. Me getting glory is always for your good because that's the kind of spender that I am. That's the kind of way I think about my finances. I'll use all of my resources for you. And Rahab's the recipient of it. Which leads us to Rahab's future. Yes, Rahab is in the genealogy of Jesus. That is her future. She doesn't know that. She, she has no idea. She's a prostitute from Jericho. She has no idea if she's even going to be saved. She is saved. And then if you study the genealogy of Jesus, she gets woven into the family of God. She gets woven into the people of God. And she's now a, a great, 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 great grandmother of the Messiah. That gets us to Advent, but more importantly, here's what I want to look at as we begin to talk about Advent. More importantly, her story is also the story of Advent. We saw this earlier based on the minimal knowledge of the Lord that she has before she places faith, but all that she knows about Yahweh, the only thing she knows about God is that he destroys people. That's what she says in her confession. You destroyed these three kingdoms, one of which was Egypt, largest superpower in the world at the time. We're terrified of you. All she knows is that he's a God who brings destruction, he's a God who is angry, and he's a God who's not afraid to pour out his wrath. Listen again as she describes the emotional state of Jericho and the inhabitants of Jericho, including herself. In verse 9 and 11, she says this, a great fear has fallen on us. And all who live in this country are melting in fear. Our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage has failed because of you. Scared, fearful, 
doomsday, fatalistic, hopeless, despairing, frantic. This is, this is over-the-top descriptions of the level of fear that the people in Jericho are experiencing. The author literally can't say it anymore, any more explicitly. He says it like five times in two verses. The people of Jericho, including Rahab, are terrified. But for the ones whom the Lord had come to save, all was not lost. All was not dread. Rahab and her family actually experience a different story. They have a different narrative about God than they did when he first showed up. They get to experience God saying to them, God is not here to destroy you. He's here to welcome you. God is here to get you. Rahab pleads for God to spare her. She knows he can do that. That's all she knows he has ever done up until this point, that he has decimated his enemies before, and she is hoping, longing, and wishing for the God of wrath that she knows to also be a God of mercy. It's like she's saying, I know he's powerful. I hope he's merciful. And the story works out that she's right. Her hopes are realized. I know him to be powerful. He is more merciful than he is powerful. She and her family were spared. Mercy burst into the doom. And that little microcosm, I know God to be powerful. I hope he's merciful. That little microcosm is the story of Christmas. That all of Israel, the entire nation of the people of God, in Matthew chapter 1, they haven't heard from God in 400 years. All they have to go on is the fact that God is silent with us right now for four centuries. I don't know what you do when people that you love are silent towards you, but it's really easy to assume they're deathly angry at me. 400 years of silence from the Lord, the living dread of all of Israel They were sure that utter destruction was coming. They would have been just like Jericho. We are melting in fear because of the Lord. We are melting. Our courage has failed because of you. All in this country are living in a great fear. Scared, fearful, doomsday, fatalistic, hopeless, despair, frantic. It's the same experience in Jericho. It's the same experience for Rahab. And into the scene of the New Testament, after this 400 years of silence where all of God's people would have been sure that God was angry at them and he had come to destroy them, we see this reality play out with the shepherds. Now, yes, the shepherds outside of Bethlehem in Luke chapter two, they are terrified at the heavenly host of angels, but they're also representing the emotional state of all of God's people. Luke tells us in the, in the King James Version of the Bible, they were sore afraid, like it was hurtful how much they were afraid. The, the, the Greek actually there says, phobos, phobos, they were afraid, afraid, like double afraid. <laughs> Just like with Rahab, the author of Luke chapter two telling us about the shepherds can't describe their fear any more explicitly. They are terrified. And into their fear and into their dread, what did they hear? What did the angels announce to them? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among, among those with whom he is pleased. I know God to be powerful. I hope he's merciful. That's what the story of Rahab and the story of Christmas says to us in our waiting and in our fear and in our dread and in our despair. He is more merciful than you think he is dreadful. 
His mercy obliterates your categories. His mercy smashes the stories you've written about him. Christmas confirms the hope of mercy. So I don't know what dread you're walking in. I don't know where hope is thin. I don't know what darkness you woke up in and what despair you're carrying. I don't know where you're melting in fear and where you're saying to God, I know you're powerful. But hear the message of Christmas. This is not a message of sentimentality. This is not a message of fluffy traditions. Hear the message of Christmas into the story you're writing about yourself, into the story you've written about God. You know he's powerful, but Christmas is proof that he's merciful too. Let's pray. King Jesus, uh, Your mercy bursts into the darkness and Christmas is proof that that's the kind of king you are. That we write stories of doom. We, in our fear and in our dread, we write stories about you. We tell you how our stories are gonna go and we're writing stories out of how we feel about you and Christmas comes to us and shows us who you really are. Rahab's story hints at it and Christmas slaps us over the face with it. We know you to be powerful, but you are more merciful than we have ever thought you to be dreadful. And so Christmas season has the ability to have a darkness and a sadness hovering over it because we can feel like all of our longings and the way we want our life to be going and the way we wish that our life had changed since last Christmas, that none of that is going on. And so the dread and the doom while all the jolly is happening can be crushing. And so please, Jesus, whisper to us this Sabbath that our rest comes not from finding you but from being found by you. And that's what the Christmas, that's what the Advent makes ever so clear. We love you. Thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen.